I started reading through uh, Psalms again yesterday, and Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so uh, this evening we want to spend some time meditating on uh, the word of God. So let me pray. God, you know us. You know us better than we know us. You know our hearts. You know our motives, you uh, completely know us. And that's scary, Lord, as we, uh, as we think about you and the fact that you are holy and the fact that you are wise and the fact that you are eternal, the fact that you are infinite, the fact that you hold this universe in the palm of your hand. Lord, the fact that you know us, you see us, is, uh, could be really terrifying because we are sinners, Lord. We, we look in our hearts and we are discouraged so often by what we see there, the fear, the uh, selfishness, the uh, lack of love for your word. Lord, there's just the superficiality, the things that we uh, get excited about that are not really significant and the, thing, the significant things that we don't get excited about that we should be excited about, Lord. There's so much that's broken and wrong in our hearts. And uh, yet, Lord, you've chosen to love us. And you have uh, sent a savior for people like us. And you've provided a complete forgiveness. And you have, Lord, given us hope. You've changed us. You have given us a heart that uh, wants to know you, that wants to study your word. You have given us the church, you've given us your word, you've given us the hope of eternal life, you have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, you uh, are present with us, you, Lord, are are good to us. And so we want to say thank you, we want to say help, Lord, would you use this evening as just part of the process of speaking to us and drawing us into our relationship with you and fixing us and making us want what we should want and think what we should think and be who we should be. And uh, Lord, if there's anything in our life that is going the wrong direction, use your word tonight to speak to us and cause us to say no and t- to that and to turn to you. If, Lord, we need to be encouraged, encourage us. Just do a great work in our hearts this evening. Help us not to be apathetic Help us to recognize how how amazing you are and how good you've been and to be filled up with worship and to sort of overflow uh, with love for you and love for others. And uh, we just ask this in Jesus' name. Jesus, you are our Savior. Amen. All right, well, it's good to see you uh, this evening. I missed you last week. Uh, How you doing? I... uh, Hope you had a good time. I had a, we had a nice time away, um, but we're glad to be back for sure. And uh, I hope you enjoyed your time with Isaiah last week. I didn't get a chance to really talk to him about it, but I'm I'm sure uh, you did. 
And I also hope you enjoyed that message uh, from Abner Chow. Um, I don't I know what impacted you the most if you got a chance to listen to it. Um, did you talk about that at all last week, Isaiah? Yeah, that's yeah, I, I, yeah, awesome, awesome. Can anybody remember one thing that stood out to them from that, uh, from that message? We're not going to have to do that whole thing again because you did that last week, but um, I didn't get to hear anything that stood out to you from that message. God's word is deep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not just this academic, know a lot of information, but it should flow out in love and adoration. Yeah, one of the things I love, uh, loved from that message and think about a lot is this idea that every word matters. Every word matters. And uh, that's part of why we're doing this little overview of the Bible on Wednesday evenings, actually, because we know it does matter. And yet the truth is sometimes it's hard for us to, uh, especially as we're reading on our own, it's, it's, it's hard for us to always understand why it matters. Uh, we're maybe looking down at the rules for priests, and we're like in Leviticus, and we're like, why does this uh, matter exactly? Or we're reading a, a story about uh, Elisha, and we're like, I'm not sure how this is supposed to impact my life. And so we tend to gravitate to parts of the Bible that uh, we can understand more easily. Um, where we're like, where is the Psalms? Where is where is the Book of Proverbs? Uh, where's the New Testament? Let me get there. Which is understandable, of course. I mean, we can understand wanting to go to the passages that are more clear. But uh, it also means that there's a lot of the Bible that we don't end up benefiting from as much as we should. And uh, actually, that we don't always understand the parts that we think we do as well as we should, because so much of the Bible is interconnected and quoting and alluding to other parts of the Bible. I was reminded of that this week because on Sunday we're going to be in uh, Luke 9, looking at the transfiguration of Jesus, and almost every phrase in that passage is an allusion to another part of the Bible, and a significant one. And so it's really hard to preach because it's kind of like, you know what, before we look at the transfiguration, let me just preach the whole Bible to you. <laughs> it's just hyperlinks everywhere. And so uh, we're just going to go back. That's what we're doing on Wednesday evenings. And we're saying, okay, uh, what is this about, the Old Testament, and uh, how do I get something from this? Starting with Genesis. Surprise, surprise, because that's the first book of the Bible. And uh, we're not going to look at Genesis verse by verse uh, on Wednesday evenings yet, unfortunately. This is kind of an overview. But we are looking at Genesis a little more closely than we will some of the other books, maybe, because uh, Genesis is very important. And we gave some reasons the last time we were together why Genesis is so important. Uh, but it's uh, like a foundation, really. And so it's important to the Bible like a foundation to a house is important which is why we took the time to uh, look at some of the background material 
that can help us understand what we're reading, like we talked about the author of Genesis, the audience for Genesis, and the setting of Genesis. And those are important for understanding a book like Genesis because Genesis is telling a story, but it's not like the Lord of the Rings or uh, something like that. Uh, you read the Lord of the Rings, you, uh, a, a fictional book, and knowing the author of the Lord of the Rings might be helpful or it, it might not be important. But we don't really need to know the author or the reason he was writing to enjoy it. But Genesis is preaching. And so it's a story, but behind that story, the author is he, he's, he's using and telling those stories to share a message. And really, God is the ultimate author. Genesis is God communicating a message using stories. And so you're not just reading Genesis to say, oh, this is interesting, or uh, just to gather some facts, like, okay, that's when he, Noah built this out of that. Uh, but to be taught, to be corrected, to be rebuked, and to be trained in righteousness. And so last time I was here, we began thinking about what is Moses preaching in Genesis? And we spent most of our time in Genesis 1 and 2, which are really important chapters for understanding Genesis, but not just Genesis, the, the story of the whole Bible. And so Genesis, the, the book, you can divide into two parts, Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis uh, 12 through 50. So Genesis 1 through 11 is the beginning of the world, and Genesis 12 through 50 is the beginning of, uh, of Israel. And Genesis 1 to 11, you could divide a couple different ways as well. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, creation. Chapters 3 through 5, the, the fall, judgment, and hope. Chapters 6 through 11, decreation, recreation, the fall again, and then judgment. And uh, yet, even though this uh, first part, Genesis 1 to 11, is pretty sad, there, we usually think of one fall in Genesis 1 through 11, but I actually was thinking this morning that there, were, there are five falls in Genesis 1 through 11. So there's Adam who falls, there's Cain who falls, there's uh, the whole world basically that falls, there's Noah that falls. And then there's, I guess there's six, there's uh, Ham who has a fall, and then there's the Tower of Babel. The whole world again has uh, another tragic fall. And so Genesis 1 to 11 is pretty sad, and yet I can't emphasize enough how thankful we should be that the Bible begins the way it does with Genesis 1 to 11, and Genesis 1 to 2 specifically, because it doesn't have to, actually. Uh, it, it's actually uh, kind of surprising that it does begin this way if you think about the original audience. Uh, because, I mean, if you just think about Moses, he's writing this book, and he's talking to this big group of people who've just been rescued from slavery and now are, like, stuck in the wilderness, and they're looking to enter the land of Canaan. And if you think about it, there's a lot of different ways that he could have begun. If you were going to write to, what, a million people or so, something uh, before they entered the promised land, there are a lot of different things you might want to say, but probably you would expect him to start by saying something about them. Here's what you need to remember. Here's uh, what I think is important for you to do 
tomorrow when you're in Canaan. But he doesn't begin with them specifically, actually. Instead, he goes way back to the beginning and starts with the creation of man and God's design for the world. So I suppose it would be a little like if someone was a running for president or something and he was trying to give his motivational speech about America and he starts with the creation of the world. Um, that's an interesting way to begin a message and yet that's how Moses begins this message to Israel and he begins at the beginning with the creation of man and God's design for the world to say that what God is doing in this nation, Israel, is bigger than Israel. If you're going to understand you and what's happening in your life right now, you're going to have to look back at God's plan for humanity. And so we did look back at Genesis 1 and we said, okay, what is the plan? What are we seeing here? If you think of these chapters as God pulling out pictures, what are the pictures? And uh, one picture we saw, we saw that we're getting in Genesis 1 and 2 of God's plan for the world is for it to be a place where he establishes a kingdom and actually a specific kind of kingdom because we know God is king and he rules over everything. So, uh, for example, if you go to heaven, God is king in heaven. But when we look at Genesis 1, we see God establishing a specific kind of kingdom. And this is a big theological world word, but it's an important word or phrase for understanding the story of the Bible. And it's a mediatorial kingdom. How's that? God is establishing a mediatorial kingdom. Remember that there's a universal kingdom. That's God is king over everything. And then there's a mediatorial kingdom. And this phrase is important. A mediatorial kingdom is where God rules through a chosen representative. So God is king, but he exercises his rule through a chosen representative. And you see that design in Genesis chapter 1, that that is God's design for the world. He is creating this world to rule it through a chosen representative. And in Genesis 1, from the, that's evident from the very first page, where God starts off, obviously, by himself. In the beginning, God. And he makes this beautiful world, and he's creating it, and he's organizing this world in a very structured way. For what? We get to day six. And Moses highlights what happens on day six as very special. If you look at especially verses 26 through 28, we see that he talks longer here than he has the rest of the chapter. He talks differently. He, he actually starts repeating himself and speaking poetry. And so he's highlighting these verses to demonstrate their significance. And we see on day six, God creating man. Um, for what? Genesis 1:26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> and that's one of the most important uh, verses in the Bible, passages in the Bible for understanding what it means to be human, because what God is saying about both the man and the woman is that they are both created in the image of God, and that means that they are created to represent God by ruling and subduing the earth as God's mediator. Um, so basically, God makes man, many king and many queens, man and woman, many king and many queens. We were designed to glorify God by bringing this earth into uh, sub submission and uh, filling it up with other representatives of God so that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And uh, as one author puts it, as we think about this plan, man was made to rule. And where was man made to rule? On earth. Man was created to rule from and over the earth. Man was not created to reign from heaven over heaven or from heaven over a spiritual realm, nor was man tasked to reign over the earth from heaven. No man was created to rule from the earth and over the earth. And I'm emphasizing that at the beginning because we're going to talk about that many years from now when we get to the end <laughs> because that's where God's taking the world. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna finish what he started here. He's going to create a take out the curse and enable us to rule over this world as his representatives. And of course, this is part of the reason Jesus came into the world. And we know that because if we step back from Genesis and look at the whole Bible, we see that God's plan here didn't end with the fall. So if you go to Psalm chapter 8, you find that the psalmist in Psalm chapter 8 is reflecting on man's purpose in this world. And uh, first of all, this is a pretty famous psalm, but first of all, he's just struck by how small we are uh, in verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3. He says, when I look at your heavens, I like that, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what, and that's, he was only looking at what he could see with his eyes at that point, but even that humbled him, and he said, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. And so he is struck by the vastness of the universe and thinking about the fact that it's really just the work of God's fingers. And so if we think the universe is large, imagine the greatness of God if the universe is just the work of his fingers. And then he looks at us and he's like, who are we that you even care about us? And then he turns and thinks about our big purpose. He says, yet, yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And that's almost like inspired commentary on Genesis chapter one. This is what he's saying we have been made for. And he's saying that after the fall. He's recognizing this is still God's purpose for man. And yet if we look at how man's used the authority God gave him, even in Genesis 4 through 11, we see that we use it to build an anti-kingdom. 
So we were created to bring this world into submission for the glory of God, but instead we use these gifts that God gave us to build a kingdom really without God, an anti-kingdom of God, and to drag this world into chaos. And in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews quotes this psalm to say that this is part of why Jesus came into the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, if you want to just turn there, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. He's actually beginning here by thinking about the, the end. So in the beginning, that means the beginning of God's plan, God created the world, but God's not finished. He has a, a world to come. He's going to suck the sin out of this world and make it perfect. There's a, uh, it's going to be purified. There's a world to come. And so he's thinking about that. And he says, for it was not two angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So he's thinking about God's future plan. And then he quotes Psalm 8. It says, he says, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So this is what you made us for. But we recognize that as we look at the world, it doesn't look the way it's supposed to. But this is where the world is going. God's going to complete what he started in Genesis 1. And how do we have confidence about that? Verse 9, we look at Jesus. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so one author explains, the writer of Hebrews is offering inspired commentary concerning when Psalm 8 will be fulfilled. So Psalm 8 is inspired commentary on Genesis 1, and Hebrews 2 is inspired commentary on Psalm 8. And what this writer is making clear is that the man's rule will, over the world will occur in the future. It's not happening now. This is evident by the words world to come and by the fact that at the end of verse 8, he says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Even though man still possesses the right to rule creation, we do not yet see the successful rule of man over it. Man's successful rule over creation awaits the future. Hebrews 2.9 then brings up Jesus who suffered and is now exalted because man's successful reign over the earth cannot occur while he's estranged from God. But Jesus, the ultimate representative of mankind, suffered and tasted death for everyone so that the successful reign of man over the earth can occur. This shows that the cross is related to the coming kingdom. Without the cross, there would be no kingdom. In sum, the message of Hebrews 2 and its quotation of Psalm 8 is that mankind is still destined to rule this earth but this has not happened yet, but it will occur in the world to come. This fulfillment is tied to Jesus who tasted death for everyone so that man one day can fulfill his mandate to rule the earth successfully. And so all that starts back in Genesis where it first introduces this theme of the kingdom. That's, uh, that's one picture. Another picture in Genesis 1 and 2 is that of a tabernacle. And we uh, spent a long time talking about that last time. So we can think of this world as being like God creating a kingdom, a mediatorial kingdom, but another picture that helps us understand Genesis 1 and 2 is the word, uh, is, is thinking of the world like a, a building. So when we read these chapters, it's like we're watching God make a building. But what kind of building is God making? God is building a tabernacle. 
And I, I gave you some different evidences of that last time. But this picture is important, and you can see how important it is if you think about the story of the Pentateuch as a whole. So if you look at the way, so the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible, and Genesis through Deuteronomy are five separate books, but they tell one story. So they all go together. If you're going to understand Genesis, you kind of have to understand Deuteronomy. It's all one story. So if you look at the way Moses wrote the Pentateuch, you can make an argument that Leviticus is the key to the whole thing. Which is funny because we usually think um, Leviticus is the most boring book in the Pentateuch and the one we don't want to read. But the way he designed the Pentateuch to be read is that Leviticus is kind of the key. Thematically, here's what one author says, there is good reason to believe the Pentateuch is structured concentrically. Genesis and Deuteronomy both end with a patriarch blessing the 12 tribes before dying outside the land, and Exodus and Numbers have many parallel themes, and then Leviticus is at the center. So you can maybe see in your notes that one author summarizes it like this. It goes, it kind of, this is um, sort of a literary technique that you find in the Bible. Um, it's called a chiasm, and so you'll have, it sounds sort of funny and too technical, but it, it can be helpful. Sometimes people find them everywhere where they're not, but it, they're there a lot of times. So what you have is, say this is a, a passage, and we could call that passage A. It talks about one thing. And then you have a second step, and we could call a, a second passage, and we could call that B. And then we have a third passage, you could call that C. Then you have a fourth passage, and you notice, oh, this fourth passage is different, but it has very similar themes to the second passage. We could call that fourth passage B. And then you read a fifth passage, and you say, oh, that has very similar themes to the first passage. So you could call that fifth passage A. So you have A, B, C, B, A. That's an example. And part of why they do that is to highlight the middle section, C. Then C, the middle section, that's a way they're helping you see what is their main point through the way they tell the stories or something they want you to pay attention to. And there's a sense in which the whole Pentateuch is structured like that. So in Genesis, you have a prologue. And you see uh, Israel's uh, separation from the nations, uh, being blessed. Uh, you get to see the land, the promised land. You have this idea of descendants and the land. Then in Exodus, you have them leaving Egypt. You have Israel's uh, desert journeys. You have apostasy and plagues. You have Pharaoh and magicians. You have them building the tabernacle. And then in Leviticus, you have sacrifices, cleanliness, holiness, uh, living with the tabernacle. Then in Numbers, Numbers is, has a lot of similarities to Exodus, actually. You have Israel's desert journeys. You have the apostasy and, of Israel and plagues. You, instead of Pharaoh and the magicians, you have Balak and Balaam and uh, the dedication of the tabernacle and, and setting up of the tabernacle. And then in Deuteronomy, you have the epilogue. You have separation, the importance of separation from the nations, blessing, curses as well, seeing the land, descendants, and the land. And so uh, Leviticus really is, is in the middle. And, uh, you know, 
if you want a lot more proof of that, that would probably make you really boring. It would feel real boring to you in this setting. You can read articles on that where they'll give a lot more proofs. But Leviticus is basically at the center. And what's certainly Mount Sinai is at the center. If you think about just the amount of space in the first five books of the Bible that are given to the creation of the world, that are given to like thousands of years of history, and then that are given to like just a short period of time around a mountain. That time around the mountain is like this. That other time, thousands of years, is like this. So Mount Sinai looms large in the Pentateuch. Leviticus looms large in the Pentateuch. And what is Leviticus about, basically? It's about how can God dwell with Israel, like live in the presence of Israel without Israel dying, basically. And the reason they're talking about that is because in Exodus, God rescues Israel from Egypt and meets with them at a mountain, and then he gives them this plan for a tabernacle, and it's almost like if Israel is wondering, what is this about? Why? Like, you rescue, you just can imagine, you get rescued from slavery, you know a little bit about this God, but you don't know much about him. You get rescued from slavery, he brings you to this mountain, you see all this... um, like fire and lightning, and you're like, don't go near the mountain or you're going to die. Moses goes up there, and you know, what, what, what are you talk, what God, what's God talking with you about? He's like, we've got to make this tent. That's what you were, you know, and the laws, but like, that's what you were talking with them about up there. We've got to make this tent. And so you're like, what is going on with this tent? Like, we did all this to make this tent. And then Moses is like, well, if you want to understand what this tent is about, Read Genesis 1 and 2, especially chapter 2. Because this was God's plan from the beginning. That's why he put Adam and Eve there, so they could meet together with him and enjoy him in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve messed up, but God didn't give up, and this is what he wants to do. He he wants us to be able to experience his presence again, like Adam and Eve experienced it in the Garden of Eden. And so he calls Israel, and he has them make a tabernacle, And the way he tells them to make the tabernacle, a lot of the design is related back to the Garden of Eden. And so it's basically like God saying, I'm going to recreate the Garden of Eden with this tabernacle. But now we're broken, and the world's broken, and there's all this sin around us. And so if the Garden of Eden is going to be here with you guys in this sinful state, there's a lot that's going to have to happen if you're not going to die. (laughs) Um, But again... All that's tied back to Genesis. That's the point. Genesis is the context for understanding the tabernacle and Leviticus by showing that the ultimate goal of creation was for man to dwell with God. And so Israel, Exodus through Deuteronomy, the rest of the Bible is providing a solution to the problem that you understand from these first chapters of Genesis. First, by looking at the world before it was broken and seeing this idea of a perfect kingdom and tabernacle and man and woman as kings and queens in the world, and Adam and Eve serving as kinds of priests there in the Garden of Eden and failing. I was thinking this week, you know, reading these first couple of chapters as a dad in ancient Israel. Imagine, um, how would they help me? And I was, I was thinking especially, imagine trying to actually keep, teach your kids Leviticus, like not just as history, but you actually have to teach them to do it. You have to teach them to follow these rituals that you read in Leviticus, all these rules, like clean, unclean, all that. Oh, be careful, careful. You have to teach them all this. 
Otherwise, man, your whole life, you know, you get unclean. You got to go out and like everything gets slowed down. <laughs> so much going on. And I was thinking, uh, even not just teaching them Leviticus, but imagine you're going to enter the land and you're trying to explain, okay, kids, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go into this land and go to war. And your kids would be like, why? Why? What, what, what is going on with this? And how would you explain? I think what you would do is you'd begin with Genesis 1 to 11. You would start with the first couple chapters and say, this is how God designed the world to be. And yet Adam failed. And so the consequence of that is Genesis 3 through 11. And that's why we're here on the planet as a nation. That's why we have to do all this now. And that's why we're taking over Canaan. And that's why we have the tabernacle. We're a key part of God's solution to this problem that started way back at the beginning. God said he wanted to bring blessing to the whole world through Abraham's descendants. And this is how he's designing to do it right now. And what's the problem specifically that Israel was being called out of the world to deal with? And now we're at a a third key theme that we're introduced to in the book of Genesis. And that's the idea of exile, which we've discussed before. But Genesis 3 through 11 described the problem that the Bible's solving And one word, picture, or idea that can help you understand what that problem is, is that of exile. So um, one of my favorite books is called, Who Shall Ascend to the Mountain of the Lord? So that's the title. And that's a quote from Psalm 15, verse 1. So Psalm 15, verse 1 is, Who Shall Ascend to the Mountain of the Lord? That's the question that he's asking in Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then Psalm 24 has this very similar question as well. But do you know why he's asking that question there? He's asking that question because the temple is up on a mountain. So the temple was on a hill. So in the psalm, he's asking, who can ascend the mountain to enter into the presence of God? But... The idea of ascending a mountain to enter the presence of God actually comes from all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Because Ezekiel tells us that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. So you can see that at Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14. And of course, the Bible opens up with Adam able to ascend this mountain. So who's able to ascend the mountain in Genesis 1 and enter the the Holy of Holies, the Garden of Eden, Adam is, because he's blameless at that point. But what happens on that mountain? Adam and Eve refused to listen to God, and God drove them out of the garden, off the mountain, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. And this, as one author explains, becomes the central tragic event propelling the entire drama of the Pentateuch and then the rest of the Bible. How do we get back up on that mountain? (laughs) How do we ascend the mountain of the Lord to to be in the presence of God? Um, And uh, you see the direction we naturally go looking at the opening chapters of Genesis. As Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, at first they seem to stay somewhere nearby. So there's the Garden of Eden and then there's Eden. So the Garden of Eden was a garden in Eden, on a mountain. And um, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, 
So you know how like the tabernacle had the Holy of Holies, had the Holy Place, and it had this outer court. That's sort of the same Mount Sinai had those three kinds of things as well, and so did, the, so did the world originally. And so Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden, but they stay somewhere nearby uh, in Eden. In fact, uh, this is, some scholars think, where they offered the sacrifices we read about in Genesis 4, at the gate of the Garden. And this is where Cain failed. And what happens to Cain in Genesis 4 is that he goes further away from Eden. He's driven further and further away from Eden. Genesis 4.16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then, of course, people get worse and worse until God judges the world with water. And that's pictured almost as a reversal of creation, a decreation, you could say. After which God starts over again with Noah on a mountain as a second Adam who fails just like the first Adam. I mean, he, he drinks the fruit of the vine this time, and he ends up naked and ashamed. And things get so bad again that all mankind comes together to do what? Do you know what they're doing? They build their own mountain. That's basically what the Tower of Zab- ba- Babel was. They call it like a ziggurat. But it's like a, a kind of mountain, and the goal was to try to basically ascend the mountain on their own to be able to, they thought, uh, get into God's presence. And they are judged, and they're sent into exile all over the world. And then God starts again with Israel, and he puts them in the promised land, and he gives them a new kind of Garden of Eden, um, the tabernacle. So actually what happens first is he meets them at a mountain. And uh, Moses gets to go into the Garden of Eden in a sense, and ascend into the presence of God. And on that mountain, God gives Moses a plan for like a portable mountain while they're on the way. That's the tabernacle. <laughs> the tabernacle is like Mount Sinai traveling with Israel until they're able to build a temple in Jerusalem on the mountain there. Um, but uh, they end up doing the same thing that man did at the beginning after hundreds of years, and are sent into exile. But again, this all starts in Genesis. This is a big book. We're looking at Genesis, and we're seeing what the story of the Bible is about and what the problem is. Now, what about the solution? Um, So this is always, you know how sometimes we're like, I just wish I could experience God more deeply or like be in the presence of God. And whenever people say that to me, I'm like, yeah, of course, that's part of the curse, you guys. That's that longing that you have in your heart for more of God and more uh, a, a deeper appreciation of his presence, that's where we're headed. But that's part of the reason why we don't get that the way we want is because of man's rebellion. Don't blame God, God for that. God's on a uh, thousands and thousands of years uh, plan right now to get us back in to his presence, and right now as believers, we are able to experience little drips and drabs of that as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship we have with one another, but what is the solution? Anyway, if we go back to Genesis, what we're looking at the beginning of the solution to this problem, and this leads us to a fourth key theme, and I think you could say if we focus on Genesis, this is really the main theme of the story uh, that Genesis 12 tells. So you know we've been talking about Genesis now mostly as part of the story of the whole Bible. So we've been trying to connect Genesis 1 and 2 to the whole story. And if we do that, 
we talk about kingdom and tabernacles and kings and priests. But Genesis has its own story as well. And I wonder if you ever thought about Genesis just as, a, as one book, how you would summarize the story of Genesis. Like if this book just stood on its own and it was the only book in the whole Bible, what story is it telling? And I think that's important because sometimes we read a book like Genesis and we read it so disconnected. So we read it chapter by chapter or story by story that uh, we don't think about it as a whole. Meaning we don't understand how all the stories in Genesis connect together to tell one story. So it's almost like we read Genesis like we would read O. Henry or like um, a, book, a book full of short stories. You've probably, I'm sure you've read, I like, I'm a short story guy. I like, I love uh, short stories. But when you read a book of short stories, generally those stories are pretty disconnected. Um, but the stories in Genesis aren't disconnected. So it's not just like, let me tell you the story of the world. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Now let me tell you the story of Noah. Fascinating. Okay. Now let me tell you the story of Abraham. Interesting. Okay. Now let me tell you about this guy named Jacob. Fun. Well, let me tell you the story of a guy named Joseph. Didn't we have a good time? No, all of those stories are connected. And um, someone named Desmond Alexander says there are two hints the author of Genesis gives to help us understand the way these stories fit together. And the first is through all these genealogies. So I've told you about this before a little, but our copy of Genesis has chapters, like one, two, three, but those chapters were put in later. They weren't there originally. And yet there was a way that the author put markers in to divide Genesis into sections, and that was through a particular kind of genealogy, which we call a Toledot, or, you know, scholars call it Toledot. We probably don't call it that. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see the first one. <clears throat> These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So it's like God is producing something, and now let's look at what he produced. Or chapter 5, verse 1, is the a second one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then he goes on to talk about uh, Adam and Eve's descendants. Then chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and he goes on to talk about Noah. Or chapter 10, verse 1, uh, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then he goes on to talk about those particular de descendants. Or chapter 11, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. He begins to talk about Shem again. 11, verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. He begins to talk about Terah's descendants. Then chapter 25, uh, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. Then 25, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. He goes on to talk about Isaac and his descendants. Then chapter 36, verse 1, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. 
for those who came later. And again, 36.9, these are the generations of Esau. Continues to talk about Esau's descendants. Then 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. And of course, even just reading them like that might sound a little boring to you, and they are probably a little, feel a little boring maybe as we're reading Genesis, but they're important. He's looking at what was produced by something else, like God gives birth to the earth and the heavens. Now let me tell you about that, or Adam and Eve give gives birth to certain individuals. Let's talk about them. And if you look closely at these genealogies, what you see is that there are two groups almost. You have uh, this, the descendants of Seth, and then you have another line of people, like um, Ishmael's descendants. And those genealogies have a little different forms, actually, that help you tell them apart. So if we were to look really closely at them, you would see that there are these two kinds of genealogies he gives. The one genealogy, when he gives that, it's the line of Seth. The other genealogy, when he uses that type of genealogy, it's the line uh, that's not associated with Seth. And uh, you wonder maybe, why does he do it that way? And you get an answer, I think, in a second clue Genesis gives us, which is the repeated use of the word seed. So seed... So one way the Old Testament works is that it gives you key words. And what you find is that it repeats that key word over and over again. Because, of course, they, most of them were listening. They were not necessarily reading. And so the key words would help people hear what was being communicated. And a key word in Genesis is the word seed. So seed is found like 170 times in the Bible. And 59 of the times it's found are in the book of Genesis. And it only has 50 chapters, so that's like one time a chapter. And we think of seed maybe tree, and it's used that way a couple times, but most of the time when it's used, it's talking about a descendant, offspring, is how it's usually translated in, in your Bible, probably. And the first key time that it's used is uh, Genesis 3.15. It's used in Genesis 1 a little, but the first key time it's used is Genesis 3.15, and the way it's used there helps you understand why there's all these genealogies. So we're almost through here, but we've talked about this before, but if we're summarizing the story of Genesis, we have to talk about it again because it's the key promise. Genesis 1 and 2, God blesses the creation. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are judged and sent into exile. God's acting to judge here, but as he does, he makes this promise about salvation, and he says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, um, I will put enmity... Oh, no, he says... Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see, one, there are going to be these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that seems to be plural. But then he begins to speak in singular terms. He will bruise your head, and you, not the descendants of the serpent, but the serpent shall bruise his heel. And so that's talking about a defeat of the serpent by a singular descendant of Eve who suffers as he is crushing the serpent's head. And Eve has two children in the next chapter, and the one ends up killing the brother. And so obviously he's not that seed. And then Moses talks about some of Cain's descendants. But later at the end of the chapter, we see he comes back to Eve, and Eve has another child. And listen to what she says when she has this child. Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 25. 
Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so she here is putting her hope in this seed. I I think that she was hoping Abel would be the seed. And then she saw Cain kill Abel and and realized, okay, uh, what's going to happen now? And then she has Seth and she's saying, yes, God's, his plan is still on. This might be the seed. And this is really what other godly people did. God's got an intention to reverse the curse, to bring blessing, and he's going to do it through this seed. And this is why genealogies are so important in Genesis. It's like we're trying to keep track of the seed. There's a, is this the one? Is this the one that if you imagine a children's book and about the Messiah and you open up the children's book and you get a baby being born and it's Seth and you maybe on the bottom it's like, is this the one? And then you'd be like, no, it's not the one. And then you open up the next page and it's a picture of uh, Abraham. And you're like, is this the one? No, this is not the one. And then you keep, you keep going all the way through the Old Testament until you get to Jesus. Is this the one? Yeah, this is the one. This is the one. But that's part of what's going on in Genesis and part of what makes these genealogies important. How is God going to solve the problem we created and get us back into his presence through the descendant of Eve? Jesus is the one who can ascend the mountain and he can open up the gate so we can all get back into the Garden of Eden. It's kind of what makes the transfiguration kind of exciting, right? Because where does Jesus go up? Onto a mountain. And what do we see with Jesus? That he, he's not just having, uh, reflecting God's glory, God's glory. He is the presence of God. Like he is the tabernacle. The glory shines from him. Um, and so as we, uh, we're supposed to read Genesis, I'm saying, uh, looking at these genealogies and seeds and saying, okay, this is sort of giving me uh, a basic understanding of how God is going to reverse the curse. And uh, what do we learn as we look at the seeds in Genesis? One, we learn that it's not always going to be the one you would expect. So it's not the firstborn, which we're kind of used to, but they certainly wouldn't have been used to back then. It's Seth, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. And then uh, the Joseph story is a little more confusing because you're kind of like, is it Joseph? Or is it Judah? And this is really fun. We're going to talk, remember that question. So one, you realize, okay, the seed's not always who you expect. Two, God overcomes all kinds of obstacles for this seed. So um, Cain kills Abel, but that doesn't stop God. Uh, the Cain's children, his descendants, seems like they have babies. They're bearing fruit and multiplying all the time. But Abraham... And Sarah, they're barren. Isaac's wife is barren. So that's showing that, no, this seed is not, it's going to come at God's initiative. God's the one who's going to provide the seed. Um, and we, as we read Genesis, we see the seed often comes under attack or it's put in precarious positions, but God always protects the seed. So um, you've got Cain killing uh, Abel, you've got um, Seth being born, you've got uh, 
demonic beings intermarrying, it seems like, with, I mean, before the flood, this world was a lot of weird stuff going on. I think the flood, the Bible sort of has two eras, pre-flood, after-flood, and it's like the world's very different, pre-flood, after-flood. And so you have these demonic beings that seems like that were intermarrying as a, as a plan to try to, like, crush the hope of the seed, and yet God rescues Noah. Um, three, you see that there's a special relationship between God and this seed, uh, though this, the fact is the seed is often pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> but we know these bad sinners are still our hope because God promises that ultimately the seed who's going to bring blessing to the world is going to come through the line of Abraham. And so this is the key passage, really. Genesis 1 to 11, problems with the world. We're like, this, we're like watching this movie, and it's like this nations, and just, it's like this, we're looking at everything, thousands of years of history. And then Genesis 12 is like, zoom in on this little old man from Ur. And God's like, starts just focusing on him because it's going to be through this man's descendants that he deals with all the problems in the world. He's going to reverse, reverse the curse through Abraham's seed. And it's almost like God is pinpointing, this is the, the people you're supposed to look to. And no matter how bad they get, God demonstrates his faithfulness to them. And then fifth, we see God is going to pervert, preserve this seed no matter what. He preserves it in the face of violence. He takes care of it as demonic beings attack it. He protects the seed as he judges the entire world. He protects the seed from Abraham's compromise. Remember, like, the first thing Abraham does after God's like, hey, you know what, here's great promises. You're going to reverse the curse. I'm going to use you, your family to reverse the curse. Abraham's like, uh, there's a famine. Abraham's like, I'm scared. He goes to, down to Egypt, which if you're an Israelite reading that, Abraham went down to Egypt from the promised land. I mean, what are you feeling? You're probably like, Abraham, what are you doing, man? That's where we got stuck. Um, but he goes down, and then he's like giving his wife to Pharaoh to marry, which is kind of a problem if the seed's supposed to come through her. God protects the seed through apathy and neglect. You think of the story, maybe you can read sometime, of Judah and Tamar, who just doesn't seem to care about the seed. And then he protects the seed through famine, which is the Joseph story. And um, actually part of the point of that story is to show that God used that famine to bring them to Egypt to protect the seed. And then uh, finally, there are strong grounds for believing, this is uh, Alexander again, that the main line of descent in Genesis is viewed as a royal lineage. So Genesis also shows us that the seed... um, Ultimately, the seed who's going to reverse the curse is going to be a great, great king. Um, So we're reading Genesis. We see God's design, the problem and the solution. Is this the seed? uh, That The solution is the seed. And we get some ideas about what the seed's going to do. He's going to crush Satan. He's going to bring blessing to the world and his rule. And as we're reading Genesis, we're asking who, who, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And that's ultimately what's going on with the story of, of, of uh, Joseph. So think about Israel, um, all these tribes. They have 12 tribes. And what would they be wondering if they knew the, the hero who's going to reverse the curse is going to come from our nation? And you're one of the 12 tribes. You're wondering which, which one of the tribes is the seed going to come from, right? And there were two, what were the two major like, what, you know how the nation got divided later? 
What did they call Israel in the north? Do you remember they, they had a tribe that they actually called it by one tribe's name? That's the south. The north, but we're to get that one, they called it Ephraim. And so Ephraim was a descendant of who? Joseph. So you have Ephraim in the north, and you have Judah in the south. And so uh, we are looking at these two, and we're kind of wondering, which is the seed going to come from? Is it going to come from Ephraim, or is it going to come from Judah? And, you know, at first, reading Genesis, it kind of looks like it's going to come from Ephraim, right? It's going to come from Joseph's line because he's the youngest. And so in Genesis, it seems like it's always the youngest that gets to be the, 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 receive the blessing. He starts, off, uh, he starts off the story, which is what happens with Isaac, what happens with Jacob. They're the ones who start off the story. He receives revelation from God about being king over his brothers, right? We read about Joseph, God's with him. He's used by God to protect his family. He, in a sense, reverses the curse. He, he, you could say he completes the story, not quite, but he is at least a picture of how the story completes. He brings the family together. And uh, Jacob, in Genesis 48, spends pretty much the whole chapter uh, blessing his sons and actually giving the, the primary blessing to Ephraim. You know, he puts his hands like this, and Joseph tries to do this, and then he puts them back because he wants to give the primary blessing to Ephraim. But then, but then there's Judah. And when Joseph speaks to Judah in chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, he uh, basically says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So we have this big blessing, like the firstborn blessing going to Ephraim, basically, the son of Joseph. And then this blessing about the king coming from, from Judah. And, of course, if you were reading Genesis way later, you would read uh, that about Judah and Tamar, and the name of their son was uh, Perez. And uh, if you were familiar with the story of Ruth, you would know he was an ancestor of David. So, basically, at the end of Genesis... You're kind of like, where's the seed going to come from? I, I, I know he's supposed to be a king who defeats everyone, so it seems like it's going to come from Judah. But Ephraim gets a lot of blessing as well. And actually, if we read, say we read Josh, the book of Joshua, does anybody know which tribe Joshua was from? There's two to choose from, so you can discuss. Ephraim. And you know where Caleb was from? He represented the tribe of Judah. And so you kind of have, you look at Joshua and Caleb, and they're both pretty positive. Um, and then Judges, you're like, who's going to be king? And read Judges sometime looking at Judah and Ephraim. And at the beginning, it looks like Judah and Ephraim are both doing okay, but you follow Ephraim through the book, and uh, they are, they're part of why you're longing for a king by the end of, of Judges. And so in the end, the answer is that it's going to be a descendant of 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 Judah, not a descendant of uh, Ephraim. And the psalmist actually uh, tells us this um, in Psalm 78, 60, 67. He says, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. 
but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he's founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds uh, to be this great, great king. So in the end, it's going to be a descendant of Judah and David who does what Joseph did, actually, in a complete way and fulfills the great promise of Genesis 3.15. So that's the basic story of Genesis, a way you can summarize it. From the start, God's getting us ready for what he's going to do through the Messiah he's going to send, and Genesis tells us to think big. So you are upset with the way the world is. You want to experience the presence of God. Genesis is like, you're right. You were made for something more. You were made to dwell on the mountain in the presence of God and to be kings and queens and to uh, be these great priests. Um, and that's, that's the plan. And Genesis tells us the problem. It's human rebellion and idolatry. And then it gives us the promise that God's going to send someone to overcome Satan and reverse the curse and even explains later that he's going to be ruler of the universe. That's one of the main things Moses is wanting to teach the Israelites, how God's saving. But he's also wanting to teach us how we are to respond, which maybe we'll talk about uh, next time. Um, or maybe not. We'll see. Let's keep it fun. But, uh, and Genesis is, is pretty evident that the, it pretty, makes it pretty clear that the response God wants from us is to trust, to, to believe that he can, he can take all this evil that we see and accomplish good and accomplish, accomplish his, his plan. But fun, huh? The Bible, that's not just fun. I'm, I'm too small a word, but we're grateful, grateful for God speaking to us through his, through his word.